James Wayne from Creative Ventures here to talk AI, national AI competition, hard tech investing, and we're even going to get into automated pizza making. This show is actually brought to you by Creative Ventures. Of course, we have to kick it off with a discussion about uh, the implications of Huawei's new Kirin 9000S chip. Uh, James, dialing in from Taipei, welcome to China Talk. Yeah, thanks, Jordan. Glad to be here. And yeah, that's right. a pretty full plate in terms of topics. You know, um, we'll see how many toppings we end up getting to from our main course. Uh, but first, I want to start with uh, the Huawei's uh, Breakthrough 7 nanometer chip manufactured um, out of SMIC. So, um, you know, we've, we've done uh, one pretty deep dive show with um, Dylan and Doug, who had a very bullish take on the sort of broader implications for this. And the but and we sort of had it back and forth before the show. One of the nits you had to pick with this sort of bull thesis on just how good uh, sort of Chinese semiconductor manufacturing could be in the next few years, um, particularly with respect to AI hardware, was this idea that, you know, replicating what NVIDIA did um, with CUDA would be a relatively straightforward task. Um, so James, why don't you take a, take a step back, sort of explain what, um, what CUDA is, why it's so important, why the whole world uses it to train their, um, you know, train their frontier models, and what the Chinese ecosystem, if it starts, um, you know, relying on Huawei or BRAN um, AI accelerators to make their own, you know, GPTs and CLODs, um, what that will um, entail from a uh, from a software perspective. Okay, Ooh, getting into controversy right from the start. This sounds a lot like a hardware person talking about how software is really easy to do. <laughs> I think that's my uh, sort of exact words that kicked off our conversation there. So look, I mean, CUDA is basically NVIDIA's proprietary, uh, it, the programming language and the APIs of it is not proprietary. But what it is, is essentially it's a much easier way to write parallel code that's targeted only at NVIDIA GPUs. And this has really been one of Jensen Huang's like big uh, initiatives where essentially it's like, if you're saying that, hey, you know, we're gonna be able to just get around it or whatever, it's kind of like Jensen Huang. It's like, is he a joke to you sort of thing? <laughs> uh, a lot of the low level libraries, a lot of the AI research, everything's pretty much been built on this. Uh, so if you're actually going to be able to try to, if you're going to try to actually move away from it, you have to rebuild a lot of infrastructure, a lot of architecture, a lot of these different things that basically you need to start from scratch for a lot of it. And I think one of the arguments for, hey, it's actually going to be pretty easy to do it is sort of belied by AMD basically having tried to replicate it uh, with their own version of it called RockM, which is supposed to be compatible with it, supposed to work well but it's still buggy, doesn't work particularly well. Uh, I think when I tried it a few years ago, it still didn't really do floating point calculations particularly well, which is an issue. So lots of technical details there, but I think the underlying part of it is CUDA is part of NVIDIA's big moat and advantage where they essentially are able to use this to lock a bunch of PhDs and other folks who are researching stuff in able to have people build up their uh, models and everything else using it. And it just makes it really, really hard to move away from. It's why pretty much machine learning for GPUs almost exclusively just uses NVIDIA GPUs still. There was a great uh, sort of viral um, George Hotz, uh, who's this sort of like star YouTube programmer um, riff that he went on where he sort of spent three days um, trying to program with um, uh, uh, with with the Invi with excuse me with the AMD offering, um, and you know he had like the you know first he had the the customer representative on the phone, and then he like ended up having you know some super senior level person. And at the end of it, he was like, "This is hopeless. This company is terrible. No one will ever build anything on this stack. Uh, I'm sorry, you know, <laughs> long long NVDA." Um, but you know, it's it, it is a slightly different proposition, I think. In, in China versus like, you know, AMD, like trying to figure out software versus the entire sort of Chinese software, you know, Chinese you know, AI ecosystem um, end up ending up sort of deciding that this is something that their nation needs and then working together on it. And I think you've seen, you know, somewhat power, you know, not entirely the same, but a somewhat parallel 
arc with uh, Risk Five in China, where there's been an enormous amount of investment on the part of uh, you know anyone who makes chips from uh, or, or uses chips in their products from from Xiaomi to um, uh, to Alibaba to really try to boost up that ISA and and make it something that you wouldn't necessarily need x86 or um, uh, um, or sort of arm cores to, to build around and obviously you know it's not there yet Huawei still had a, a ton of arm uh, you know at least four I guess you know four off the shelf arm cores and then eight, four other arm cores that they you know built their own um, uh, um, you know uh, built their own chips with but but still it it, it, it is um, uh, it's representative, I think, of a potential playbook that you could end up cobbling together of uh, sort of like, you know, jo- joining forces in a like open source manner um, in order to uh, get around a, a foreign uh, software roadblock. Yeah, though, that's a though I'd say that that's one of those things where if you make an argument that you can throw infinite money and infinite time at anything, you can pretty much replicate anything, right? Just from the perspective of VC, it's one of those things that you have to make sure you don't fall into because you can always poke holes into anyone's business model by basically saying, yeah, definitely Intel or whoever will be able to replicate this. The question is, will they? Now, China, I agree, has had a history of doing this better because they've needed to. But even for, say, Huawei, I mean, they have their own OS now, but there's a reason why they were trying to use Android for the longest time, right? You'd have to basically build up something that just matches everyone else's capabilities from scratch, which is a pain in the ass. You also have to then keep it up and maintain it yourself, which is, again, annoying and a pain in the ass. And from the perspective of the entire global machine learning community, basically sitting on top of, for the the acceleration, for the optimization, essentially CUDA, Uh, you'd basically have to take each and every single thing as you're playing around with it, as you're prototyping, and try to translate that into an optimized version of whatever whatever else you're using. So it just is a pretty massive slowdown. It's not impossible. It's just, just like everything else here, it just makes, it's just a really, really far step back if you have to start from scratch there. Yeah. Speaking about that, that Huawei OS, I, I was watching some some Billy Billy YouTube like ecosystem comparisons of what you know you can do with your Huawei phone, tablet, and uh, and PC versus your Apple phone, tablet, and PC. And like, look, they have they now have features that you can't do um, uh, in your Apple ecosystem, and that is like remarkable um, for them. You know, really not investing in this at all, it being Harmony OS being like a joke. Um, to it now, you know, I'm being able to like, you know, drag contacts and, and, you know, have screen extensions and all this cool stuff, which like Apple's kind of still locked down on. And, and by the way, everyone talking about, oh, you can't get um, a Google, um, Google products on your Huawei phone. Well, actually, like all you need to do is download one thing. Um, and then it like opens it up and you can download this stuff. So anyways, um, I, I take your point, James, that like, Building an operating system is a little less sort of like bleeding edge tech than, um, you know, trying to replicate like the, the you know, uh, this generation's greatest minds, like new innovations and in compiling, um, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in sort of generating and, and um, uh, uh, in deploying models. But um, uh, it's, it's not impossible. Well, maybe maybe I'll make one quick clarification here, because I think the way that that picture looks for listeners it's like there's like brilliant minds manhattan project sort of things all working together in terms of ai community and open source in reality these are a bunch of statisticians phds whatever throwing stuff together it kind of sticks it barely works it's poorly documented (laughs) for a lot of this stuff and then it like runs and no one's quite sure why it runs if you've ever dealt with phd code you'll kind of realize that's actually often how it looks that is actually harder to deal with than perfectly documented. Oh, all I have to do is translate this into a different, uh, you know, vernacular in terms of programming. Because uh, you look at it, and it's like I have no idea how they were doing this. I have no idea why it even works. <laughs> and then you need to translate it. That's a harder problem, actually. So it's it's not impossible. It's just extremely messy. So that's just to paint a picture of what the AI landscape. And a lot of these libraries actually look like. Yeah, this was. Um, uh, I was chatting with uh, you know, after after hanging out at Semicon with with uh, with Dylan. I was just like, man, this shit is so confusing. Can I just go to an AI conference? 
Um, and then he goes, you know, Jordan, like at least at the semiconductor conferences, like there are atoms and you can sort of follow them around like AI. No one actually knows why any of this stuff works. So anyways, uh, not sure, not sure which one, uh, I really want to invest more of my, my conference time into, but, uh, we'll see. I don't know, James, like what's the, what's the, what's the vibe at a AI conference? How do statisticians differ? Uh, and computer scientists, PhDs differ from, uh, you know, your electrical engineers. It's uh, generally speaking, they're a lot more relaxed, I think, just because, you know, you get to play around with different things. The progress is really fast. You get to talk about math and all your models and stuff. Uh, but then again, you also do have other AI conferences that you might fall into that's kind of has some of the air of some of the crypto conferences in terms of people going straight off the deep end. So you kind of have to be careful about which type of ones you go to. Uh, but I definitely would say hardware people are grumpier, angrier, and more staid. Coming probably from a kind of software person talking about hardware people now, but still. <laughs> All right. Um, so let's 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 talk about let's come back to AI for a second. So we've done you know a lot of uh, shows about um, compute. We just chatted about uh, sort of algorithmic challenges a little bit. But data is something that we haven't covered a ton on uh, China Talk, and you know now we have firms like Scale AI that are valued in the you know tens of billions of dollars, which are ostensibly just around to create better data. Um, so you know we, we we've sort of seen in the sort of like U.S. China like data competition uh, debate, I think some pretty sort of very surface level arguments really over the past decade about like who's winning and who's losing. So before we get into that. Give us a sense of like the data economy um, and and where we are in in fall 2023 um, when it comes to like who needs data and why to make their models uh, more useful. Yeah, totally. I think one of the interesting things to remind people, because I think analysts usually are able to paper over stuff that they talked about in the past that didn't turn out to be correct and then move on from it. Uh, one of the big arguments that we had some time back, right, the received wisdom, the comments, whatever was that China is going to dominate AI because China has all this data. They have a ton of people. They have less data privacy laws. And then suddenly that's going to mean that their AI is going to be much better. That didn't turn out to be the case uh, in terms of pretty much as we're seeing in terms of open AI and other stuff now. There's some questions as to why that's the case. And there's a couple of different threads to pull here. So one of the threads is that as far as data is concerned, Open AIs, like, you know, all this, these LLMs and other things, they have true value, right? Just in terms of societal value. Uh, but one distinction to make is that value to society and value, economic value overall, doesn't necessarily translate to captured value for a company. And for a lot of these models, for a lot of these different products that are getting put out there, they're essentially, not to oversimplify, but they're essentially, the data underlying it is just stuff scraped from the web. When we're talking about ChatGPT, you scraped a bunch of text from the web. When we're talking about some of the different generative models for video and uh, either photos or art. Again, you're basically scraping that stuff from the web. How much defensibility do you actually have for an open source model, for the most part, tweaked, but open source model, data that everyone with some expense can scrape from the web, and models that might take a bit to train, but even in terms of like a few million dollars or whatever, throwing it against a GPU to train, a bunch of GPUs to train, very trainable in terms of a company that's either well-funded or a large company. How much defensibility do you have in terms of all of these different pieces of it? And I think the answer that I would come to definitely is that there's not much defensibility. And one of the challenges there is that how are you going to actually have that ecosystem evolve over time? But getting back to the China point as well, I think one of the, this is another thread to pull, one of the things that you've seen over time as these models have gotten better is that transformers and LLMs didn't just get better because we were able to throw more data at them. They got better because the representation of data and how we actually use it fundamentally got better with transformers and with LLMs around 2014, 2015. We actually had trouble telling the difference between pictures of cats and not pictures of cats as two sure. classes of things. And the reason we got better at that was not because we got more pictures of cats or more compute power. 
the reason we got better at that is because our models got better. So there's an interesting thing in terms of data economy where it's not just about quantity, it's about how proprietary it is, but it's also not about, okay, we just have hordes and hordes of data. It's also about what models can we apply it against. When you combine all of this, China didn't end up having as much of an advantage because really the development has been within the models. But for the models, you actually don't, it, it's not like the person with the best model or the company with the best model suddenly wins because everyone tends to have these models. So it's actually kind of hard to capture value if you're using one of these open source models with data that's easily available, even if it's a high volume. So ultimately, from a VC perspective, in terms of interesting companies that have both the value capture and the value generation, it's going to be companies that have proprietary data that are going to be able to ride the wave of AI continually getting better and ride the frontier to essentially continue to be at the forefront with data that's extremely hard for people to replicate. And usually that's data within the physical world. Anything that's within the digital world, within the internet world, that's internet scale, tends to just be there and anyone can either replicate it or just scrape it from the internet. I think the short sort of framework to keep in mind is both the progress of AI has usually been within the models. Everyone has the models. But from a data economy perspective, interesting things that you can do tend to be, and interesting things that you can do that you can capture value from, tend to be from physical data or data that's just hard to create off, off the bat, on the fly, whatever you want to call it, and something that you can actually protect and have proprietary access to while riding the wave of AI forward. So I want to come back to this, this sort of proprietary data thing, but you know, one of the mysteries i think of the past uh uh of the past you know, year or so is chinese firms seemingly being unable to create their own you know gpt even like 3.5 level model um there have been uh you know my personal uh horse i was betting on was ByteDance. there have been some like really embarrassing articles about their progress um ernie's the the app that uh you know ernie by baidu is the is the one that i'm uh uh, has had the most uh, sort of like public released. Uh, we we did an article about it on China Talk a few weeks ago, and like I'd give it like a GPT three point one. Um, I don't know. It was pretty pretty underwhelming and like got tripped tripped over itself fast. And you know the point you you just made, James, is like everyone has this data, um, and, and you know Ch Chat GPT in Chinese GPT three point five like in Chinese. Um, having been trained on like 0.2%, uh, you know, its corpus is only like 2.2% Chinese is still like orders of magnitude better what you see out of, um, out of Chinese models. What, what are your theories on like why it's, why it's seemingly given that like, you know, all the research papers are out there, like data is available, like what, what, what is potentially stopping the big, the big Chinese firms from, uh, uh, being faster followers than they are currently? Yeah, the answer to that ends up being complicated, and there's some level of speculation to some of it, but the, the take that I have here, both from talking to different folks within the Chinese AI ecosystem, talking to folks within the AI ecosystem, mostly in the U.S. and stuff, is it's kind of... So one is there's actually a specific part of why ChatGPT is better than... Bard, better than some of these other ones. Llama's actually pretty good if you tried it out, but uh, like Meta's version in terms of Llama and stuff. Uh, and a lot of that is kind of hand-tuning in terms of certain common queries and whatnot being hand-tuned to actually work pretty well when released to the public. There's a difference between something that's hand-tuned so that consumers actually find it really nifty and something that can work in any generalized circumstance that especially from a business-to-business -business context is more important. So in terms of LLMs that you might throw at your business data lake, in terms of like business buzzwords or whatever, a lot of these actually work pretty similarly. Uh, and in terms of even including probably some of the Chinese models, which are more or less on like under the hood, very, very similar, even if cruder, sometimes cruder implementations. Now, in terms of why the Chinese AI ecosystem as a whole, not just in terms of LLMs, has not really been progressing as fast, I've heard, and this becomes speculation, different things from 
Chinese, you know, uh, people at Chinese tech companies, Chinese family offices are related, etc. on why this is the case. Uh, usually the argument comes down to one is there's regulation uh, in terms of from a company level exploration of some of this. China, China has much more stringent regulations on what you're supposed to actually check, what the model is supposed to do, and putting that much time and energy into trying to deal with just having it be compliant with the regulation is actually a pretty big burden from a company level. And from an individual level, I mean, this is uh, this is sort of your gestalt feel, right? A lot of people in China, a lot of tech companies, a lot of entrepreneurs in China don't seem the most motivated right now to go create huge, impressive, global, globally dominant companies. Uh, I mean, I don't know, maybe I should. Well, sure, whatever. We're here. It's uh, a lot of the money, a lot of the entrepreneurs whatnot, are trying to get out of China right now. And it's one, sure, because of the economic circumstance, but also two, given how Chinese regulators pretty much stomped on the tech ecosystem before. Everyone's still kind of wary about basically saying, well, now everything's okay and we can sort of go back to normal. So I think a lot of the energy has actually been drained from the Chinese ecosystem as well, especially from the entrepreneurial, exploratory kind of frontiers. And yeah. the other part is just regulation. Yeah, there's this great irony that like Dario Amade's first job in AI was actually at the Baidu lab in uh, in the Bay. Um, so for them to you know like be able to spot talent and um, uh, uh, you know and, and and give people the sort of degrees of freedom to make real uh, uh, make through make real breakthroughs only to really really you know not. Uh, uh, be, be seemingly struggling to, to be fast followers on this, I think is, is remarkable. Well, I mean, a lot of this is kind of self-inflicted, right? To some degree, China's demographic problem is self-inflicted from the one-child policy. Uh, some of the issues here in terms of regulation and whatnot is self-inflicted. And at one point, I did get asked, like, okay, from a macro perspective, what's the outlook and what's the, how does China look? And look, they have a lot of room to ease. They have a lot of room to actually do fiscal stimulus. They have a lot of room to actually do the right things to make their economy turn around pretty quickly. It's just a question of willingness, uh, because again, it's like, are you actually going to get give domestic entrepreneurs a really free reign to do whatever they want? Because if you're talking about trying to take an export driven economy and try to make it more domestic consumption, a lot of these other things that have been priorities. Guess what? The Chinese tech ecosystem was extremely inwardly focused, almost myopically so in certain cases and creating domestic consumption for gaming and other stuff. And that was actually a great rebalance for your economy, and you pretty much stomped on it. So, again, it's sort of going back to, it's not that China doesn't have the capability, it's not that China doesn't have the ability to focus and push on this. It's just a lot of these wounds are often kind of self-inflicted from the Chinese government's own actions to try to yeah. move things in a certain direction. Yeah, and, and that's sort of my take with the, with the sort of, like the you know the five to ten year AI outlook as well is like is like look models are software you can steal them you can hire away talent like people are still going to be publishing papers open source is a huge thing we have llama um, Facebook's probably going to keep doing that um, and uh, uh, you know compute probably not going to be a constraint anytime soon we've done enough shows we don't need to get into that um, and then this data thing it's like. It's like, okay, like America can hire a lot of physics PhDs to like say which answers to, uh, you know, queries are good or bad. But like Chinese firms can do the same thing. They can put sensors on robots like like there's not any sort of structural um, barrier here, um, which is sort of why I um, uh, ended up making this big pitch that AI diffusion uh, in this sort of uh, this sort of, you know, regulatory barriers as well as like how the broader, uh, you know, broader firms and the broader economy ends up adopting these new things is going to be ends up going to ends up adopting these new technology tools is ultimately going to be what drives long term productivity rather than like what's happening on the on the sort of bleeding um, bleeding research edge in either of these two countries. I mean, yeah, and though the in terms of bleeding edge, there's an interesting argument to be made that especially when you're moving very very quickly, it's uh, industrial clusters are even more important. Uh, because every time someone tries to take up something that's trailing edge, and now we're using semiconductor language, but I'm doing that somewhat deliberately, 
uh, once you actually get to trailing edge, it's like it's actually quite far behind and each sort of new jump opens up significantly more capabilities. So semiconductors is kind of the same way. I mean, you obviously have a lot of overseas semiconductor stuff now. But in terms of if you look at uh, Morris Chang, if you look at a bunch of other things, the seed of a lot of the current semiconductor industry was still essentially the initial germinating seed that came from the U.S. Uh, in terms of IP, technology, even people uh, going abroad in terms of it. So there's definitely something to be said about extremely fast-moving technologies and being in industrial clusters and having the industrial cluster around your economy. So by industrial cluster, you mean like the people in San Francisco who are at the frontier of playing with the models? Essentially. So... Yeah the exchange of ideas, the ability to test and play around with stuff. And by the way, this was what I also said in terms of the CUDA thing. It's not just the issue of like, because every time people talk a lot about like, say, developer comfort, developer productivity or whatever, from a theory perspective, it's like that doesn't matter, right? Because you can still replicate whatever it is. It matters a lot if you're actually trying to prototype, though. If you're trying to mm -hmm. basically explore ideas and create new things, every barrier, every minute, five minutes, whatever you add to a new iteration actually slows things down a huge amount if you're doing a huge number of iterations, right? So from a prototyping perspective, from the ability to like exchange ideas, from the ability to have comfort and ease around trying new things, it matters a lot if you're in the right place. So James, I want to come back to this idea of AI looking more like semiconductors and particularly the data, the data thread that we left off a little bit ago and how that sort of like proprietary data collection is actually like a, you know, something that could actually scale in costs like way higher than, you know, going from your 10 to your 100 to your billion dollar, um, you know, compute bill to training your your next model. Uh, what's what's that dynamic there? Yeah, and I think the first thing in terms of AI being similar to semiconductors is just from a perspective that everyone's looking at it. It's like a lot of these, actually VCs as well, a lot of countries are looking at it similar to software. But if you actually break down that entire dynamic, take it going from, it might cost millions of dollars, and it does for ChatGPT to train. It might cost a lot of money to actually scrape the data, et cetera. That looks more like a semiconductor company, as we we're just talking about than a traditional software company where you can pretty quickly and pretty cheaply iterate and get products out there. Uh, you have to basically get the product right or else if you're just going, oh, we're just going to retrain the model, <laughs> uh, that's kind of expensive. So uh, that, that's, sort of, that's the first point. The second point in terms of the proprietary data collection is that when you're actually getting into really interesting applications that people are like noodling on and ideating on, for example, materials design, drug discovery, uh, a lot of these different uh, different applications that have to do with physical world. Uh, those can the data, getting the data there can be very very expensive. One is the data doesn't exist, so it's not just conveniently on the internet waiting for you to potentially against terms of service scrape it off the, of the internet. It's it doesn't exist at all. And if you need to collect it, we're talking about something that, again, is a physical activity that you can't crowdsource to the entire Internet. Mm -hmm. So, like, you know, those capaches or whatever things, the things that tell you, like, click on the not buses or whatever, that was super useful for training image data sets, right? If we're now talking about, say, something like, I want to know how the, uh, I want to know specifically how these different drugs react with all of these different mammalian models, say, mice, how are you actually going to gather that data? It's not going to be like people on the internet clicking stuff, right? It's going to be, I mean, we just like internally at Creative, we kind of, it's not even a joke, actually. It's like we talk about what will a, say, drug discovery company that uses AI really look like? And the argument is it's not going to look like just a software company. What it's going to look like is a pipeline company where it's like you have AI on one side, but on the other side for the feedback loop, you actually have a robot arm uh, when a startup is in its early stages, also known as a postdoc. You have a robot arm <laughs> that basically does the physical experiment 
creates physically the drugs or the proteins or the biologics or whatever and physically administers it to say the mice for a mouse model and then takes that data feeds it back into the ai and goes around that end piece that touches the physical world that's super super expensive to do right so a lot of the companies that are going to be interesting are going to be the ones that actually do that painful step and are able to incorporate that data well because on the AI side of the equation, that's going to keep getting better, but it's going to keep getting better on its own. So how should people think about AI and um, jobs getting disappeared and or created? Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting topic because I think a lot of, uh, I mean, even economists, which is a little weird to me, uh, often say, yeah, AI is different. It's going to create mass job losses or whatever. It, it's particularly strange because right now we're actually sitting on a huge job like a huge huge gap in terms of number of people filling jobs rather than you know mass unemployment or something i think the argument might be a little different if you're sitting on mass unemployment like hard to actually get people into jobs or whatever but from the perspective of base economics i mean one is ai is a tool right from the perspective of okay like uh, inventing shovels will suddenly put construction workers out of a job. That's probably not true. <laughs> so it's like the more productive you are, the more willing you are to actually use workers and a technology to do the thing that you're actually trying to do, which is generate some sort of output. The output of the construction industry is a building, not the number of workers that you require to make the building, right? And also, and also, like the the quality and the amount of output of whatever output it is that you're making, like the demand for that is infinite. Like you could right. always do, you know, upgrades, better, faster, more, more tasty, higher. My phone's titanium now. I didn't know I needed that, but like, yeah, why not? Thanks, Tim Apple. So, so yeah, I mean, you had this, you had this great riff about. Um, uh, AI not taking away jobs, but taking away job openings, um, which is something that I is is sort of struck with struck with me because like for for a very long time I've been really puzzled when I see online uh, articles saying like there are four hundred thousand teacher job openings or like there are two hundred fifty thousand cybersecurity professionals, but like what does that mean? It's like if you want to hire someone and you're not filling the job with the job posting. Like you pay that person more, you go overseas. There's like ten other ways you can you can do, or you just like close the job posting. Um, you know, how is AI gonna How is AI gonna sort of attack this? Um, uh, these hundreds of thousands of of, of of like apparent holes in the economy. So James, let's use a little toy model um, uh, for in one of your portfolio companies, Picnic, which makes um, uh, pizza, uh, uh, which makes pizza robots. So um, you know, like. In New York, I live in New York City. You you have all these articles about like you know restaurant labor shortage, um, and uh, but 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 there but there is this like you know interesting microeconomics puzzle that like why you wouldn't just pay people more and then like bring more people into the service industry and then all of a sudden you know whatever you charge me a little more I go to the restaurant like why is why is why are we at like a local minima here when it comes to sort of suppressed wages in restaurants. Um, you know, who have customers who want to go to them, but like still can't figure out a way to increase their margin such that they can pay the people uh, enough to keep them around. Yeah, totally. I, I I mean, if you take a look at, say, the very online community or politicians or whatnot, the argument is like corporate greed. That's why people aren't raising wages. And that's why we can't get people into these jobs. Right. But if you actually look at businesses and business owners, like they need people to actually make the business turn and work. Right. If it is the case that they can actually pay people more to have them stay to actually run the business, they're actually going to. When you're talking about a pizza shop or food services or logistics or some of these other industries, you're talking about the reason why they aren't actually paying more is that the business can't actually sustain more. So if you think about it, all right, pizza shop. Pizza shop wants to retain workers and dishwashers and these other things in order to sell more pizzas because otherwise the pizzas aren't going to get made. How do you actually pay the workers more if your margins are already compressed down to 10, 7, whatever percent? Well, uh, you can raise the prices of the pizza. Uh, but the problem is like the customers might stop buying as much. So then suddenly you've actually self-defeated 
you're, you've defeated yourself by basically everyone's competing against you in terms of pizza and suddenly you raise the prices and suddenly people aren't buying your pizzas. That's a problem. You can try to compress the margins even more, but at that point you might just go out of business, especially in terms of instability in terms of the business. You can't ask your landlord necessarily to just bring down your rent. Like you actually don't have the room to increase wages. That's usually why it, wages aren't getting increased. Because if you talk to most business owners or whatever, they're happy to actually increase wages because if they do, then maybe they can get really good workers and then they stay for longer and they don't have to deal with the turnover as much. The problem is they can't. However, if you suddenly have a magic tool that drops from the sky uh, that has robotics or whatever that suddenly makes a single worker 10 times more productive and are able to go out and sell more pizzas or sell them for cheaper or whatever it is, and from an economics model, suddenly increase your margins. I mean, if you've, in, say, increased the productivity 10x, if you've increased your margins by, like, 5x, honestly... That, you, that person's really, way, they're getting... You're going to pay one person twice as much to, that's right. you know, run your pizza maker. That's right. If you want to talk about corporate greed, yes, they're not going to pay the worker 10 times as much probably. But yeah, you'd be happy to pay them twice as much if they're suddenly 10 times more productive and you have five times more margins, right? But uh, but yeah, how far away are we from uh, from robot robot pizza makers? What are the what are the sort of uh, are the hurdles like in like is the robot is there are the sort of robotic challenges we're facing today? Like to what extent are they on the same? sort of curve that we've seen over the past um, uh, few years with, with large language models. How much how much of that is transferable and and what I'm uh, what are the sticking points today? Yeah, the some of the general models are able to help, but the problem is uh, it's actually easier to use AI to either significantly enhance or basically replace certain tasks in the knowledge worker sector. It's actually much harder, but much more necessary to do it in the labor and physical activity sector. The problem mm -hmm. is it just from a, from we've had millions of years of evolution, whatever it is to basically be able to manipulate and move things around, right? Like I can take, pick something up. I can hold it without crushing it. I can move it around. I can throw it. I can do all sorts of complex tasks that if you actually break it down, it's, very, very complicated in terms of as a model to actually do all these things. Humans do it natively, even if the person is not really trained or whatever. For robots and for these machines or whatever to do it, this is basically a domain that they have no ability to really directly learn from and ability to operate in. So there are different innovations in terms of simulated data, a bunch of these other things that can actually move it forward. But that's really the problem. It's not the same as some of the large language models that you can just scrape the data from the internet or scrape data from human activity operating online. You actually have to either generate the data, create the physical models, or create the models that can learn from physical activity in a better way. So some of the translations do go through, they just don't go through as directly. Yeah, no, I was, you know, it's funny because like, uh, uh, you know, Fox... Um, for the NFL, they used to have these sort of like robot uh, mascots or whatever that would like play football. But in fact, you know, the the amount of sort of like um, mental calculation, like body awareness or whatever to play quarterback in the NFL is like so many orders of magnitude more complicated than what like any, uh, you know, any robot could even, you know, think about doing today or even in the next, you know, 10 or 15 years. It's just it is it is remarkable thinking about that. The sort of like millions of years of training we have to like, you know, run around and throw things and pick stuff up and put it down. Uh, you know, it does it does make you thankful for your ancestors and all the you know, fighting they did on the savannas or whatever to get us some, uh, uh, you know, not trip completely tripping over ourselves at every moment uh, uh, of the day. I mean, there, and the other factor, too, is also exceptions, because from an online perspective, if you mess up something on a digital level, you just can rerun it or whatever. Uh, the physical world doesn't tolerate exceptions as well. So mm. the ultimate example probably is self-driving cars. If you have an oopsie there, that's a pretty big, uh, it's a pretty big bad outcome versus if you have an oopsie in the digital world, right? So it, the bar just ends up also, not only is it harder for AI to do because it in the native domain of it, it's, uh, you have to deal with exceptions much more because the tolerance for bad things happening or thing, unexpected things happening is much lower. 
you, you now run a hard tech VC firm, which is you know a long way from uh, uh, Bridgewater, where we both started our careers, um, looking at macroeconomics. Um, very curious, sort of you know, I've I was uh, you know I've also ended up in tech and sort of I guess. Um, but James, what was your what was your story to um uh, uh, to this current profession? Yeah, I mean, a big part of it was for and look, I, I liked Bridgewater a lot. Is I actually ended up at Bridgewater from. Uh, West African microfinance, so very big change there too. Uh, but uh, part of it was that you know a lot of nonprofits tend to end up having a lot of politics and whatever involved in them. And I had a bunch of friends say, "Hey, there's a place with no politics," which <laughs> arguable in terms of true or whatever. It's it's uh it's a different type anyway. But anyway, they were saying that there's no politics, etc. You should join. Plus the signing bonus, uh, plus the uh, recruiting bonuses are really large, so you should apply for this. Anyway, so Bridgewater was actually super interesting. I really liked being able to look at you know the macro economy and stuff in all these different ways, and it's still you know been really useful in the current profession and stuff. But the thing about global macro, which is the area that Bridgewater plays in, is that you can abstract away a lot of stuff. Like you don't really have to worry about the messiness of people. You don't have to worry about the messiness of like technology change or whatever. You're playing on like the like look like the 50,000 whatever foot level of like you're looking down at like economies with, you know, uh, U.S. equities versus German equities or the currency or the exchange rates or the uh, interest rates or all of these different things. And you can just abstract away a lot of stuff. It's probably the closest thing in terms of finance to abstract math versus applied math as you can get. So I wanted to get closer to the ground and closer to technology, especially seeing a lot of really interesting things happening, especially in compute and AI, but also synthetic biology and different changes in advanced materials. Yeah. So, you know, my story, I remember, so I worked in client service and we had these, um, you know, a lot of our clients were, were sovereign nations. Um, you know, we had their, their, their wealth, the sovereign wealth funds. And like, part of what we do is like Bridgewater would sell, sell a return stream, but also sell like, oh, like, we'll like have Jordan Schneider tell you what to do with your economy or whatever. Um, and, you know, there was something that really struck out to me was like, you know, Fiscal policy, monetary policy, it's important and um, it, you know, you don't want to fuck it up. But at the end of the day, if you're thinking over like a decadal horizon, like productivity growth is what is what's going to get you there. And what is productivity growth? You know, it's education. It's it's, you know, healthcare keeping your workforce safe, but it's also technology and sort of figuring out how to how to, you know, get your country to innovate and, you know, continue to innovate and sort of like bring that innovation out into the broader economy just seemed to be like the real juice. Um, and like, you know, it's, it's some, um, uh, the, the, the sort of whole Bridgewater, like, like vision of the world of like this very Newtonian physics of like, everything is kind of static, but like technology just isn't at all. And like, we've all seen this in a beautiful way over the past, uh, over the past 24 months with, with our sort of like, you know, uh, large language uh, model revolution. And it just seemed much more exciting to me, I think, than just like watching, you know, Argentina blow up for the 14th time and like figuring out how to like, you know, find some spread between it and, you know, the Brazilian uh, real or whatever. Um, so anyways, I'm glad we're both here. I think it's a, I think it's a good place to be. I think there's, um, uh, you know, more, uh, more alpha for the planet for us doing this than, than trying to, um, uh, uh, you know, play around in bond markets. But anyways, Revealed preference, I guess. Yeah, yeah, totally. And yeah, hey, from the hedge fund perspective, uh, even just abstracting away from Bridgewater, you know, the thing is you're not supposed to affect the economy. So you predict things, you trade on things, and you make money. But you're basically supposed to come in and not affect markets because if you do, you're actually losing money from it. Sure. <laughs> so it it's, yeah, the, the perspective is very, very different versus, say, when we're talking about VC now. Time horizons much longer in terms of 10 year funds and also from the perspective of what will you actually do and whatnot. The perspective that we have is like, look, we're not explicitly an impact fund if you're talking about impact investing or whatever. But the way that we invest, we're investing in some of the biggest problems facing humanity, in our opinion. So it's uh, aging populations, which gets towards labor shortages, it gets towards rising healthcare costs. And in terms of climate change, it gets towards technologies that we really need to both make an energy transition, and also just sustain our current 
trajectory in terms of trying to decrease carbon emissions and stuff. And our perspective is like, look, if you actually scale these things, not only will we make money, uh, but it will actually help the planet a lot. And that's not really something that you can say in the hedge fund industry. It actually is completely counter to what you would want to do if you're at a hedge fund. So, James, you know, we, we, we've talked for a long time about sort of all the challenges, opportunities in the sort of like hard tech or like software increasingly becoming hard tech uh, uh, space. I'm really curious, you know, what your, um, you know, when technologies and ideas turn from like uninvestable to um, potentially, uh, you know, interesting things for folks, you know, even with you, let's, it's not an infinite time horizon, right? It's a, it's a, um, uh, it's like you just said, like a, like a, like a 10 year, you know, how do you sort of like develop your like tech rules of thumb for when things are, are, are sexy enough for you to, for you to get interested? Yeah, totally. And I think when you talked about software investing before versus hard tech investing, that's actually a very useful thread to pull out related to that. Because with software, you could actually just kind of invest in people because software is easily changed enough. You can, this is oversimplifying, but you can basically change your code, change your Google AdWords target and suddenly magically be in a new market the next week. Hard tech, deep tech, whatever you want to call it, doesn't actually work that way. Uh, even AI, like we just talked about, actually takes quite a bit of work and quite a bit of money to change what it's actually doing because you need to retrain the models and stuff, let alone, say, synthetic biology trying to make yeast or bacteria or whatever do something completely different. You just can't do that in such a rapid fashion. So from this perspective, you actually not only have to look at the team, which is still important, you have to actually really, really, really understand what market you're going after. Because if you don't actually go after the right market to start with, then you might not actually have a company by the end of it because it takes too much money and time to change. Now, the interesting thing is, I think people get, I, I wouldn't say blinded per se, but they get fooled because a lot of these deep tech technologies are actually super general purpose. You can use AI for a lot of things. You can use synthetic biology for a lot of things, right? The question is, what is the right market to go after at the start? Mm. Like putting aside the like, excitement about the technology as a whole what is the right market to start with and then expand to the rest of it and from that perspective what's the right way to execute against it but beyond that you also have to not get deluded or you not have to not get tricked by the entire thing around uh, a technology is just a breakthrough or two away from being world-changing so again this is a, i think this is another another trap that a lot of people fall into in terms of looking at this particular area it's there's a difference between what we would call engineering risk and R&D risk. And from the perspective of if you were an investor trying to look at the space, like we did talk about a 10 year time horizon, but that's 10 year time horizon for getting the technology out there and scaling. It's not a 10 year time horizon sitting around waiting for the technology to actually mature enough to actually go to market. Uh, because we've seen this multiple times in terms of gene therapy or AI, where it's just a breakthrough or two away from viability. And what we do is we look at something that's ready for the market now, take that and take that 10 years to get the engineering and scaling right and basically go out to market and ideally less than 10 years, but something in terms of that time frame for getting it out to market and getting that right. And then also being able to have that technology go into the right market to start with so that it can sustain itself and then scale from there. So um, just the idea of like big versus small markets, it's like I had no idea idea how big pizza was until my friend started working at slice which is a it's basically like a SaaS company which sells only it it's just like you know it's like a delivery it's it's sort of like you know like a like a payments delivery whatever like operations thing only for american like independently owned pizza companies and it's raised it's raised like 125 million dollars it's like a real like venture backed success. Um, so the idea that, that pizza as like the, you know, pizza is actually like kind of maybe the right place if you want to start, you know, automating, automating some kitchen stuff. I mean, the fascinating thing is when you're talking about pizza being huge, which is true, burgers are even bigger. Like some of these other food service segments are even bigger than pizza. But the reason why we think that pizza is the right place to start has to, and this is more generally applicable too, has to do with market structure. If you're talking about burgers, again, oversimplifying, but if you're talking about burgers, that's McDonald's. Like everyone else in terms of the pie chart of 
market share in terms of like like what it is there are tiny. Yeah. The interesting thing about pizza is not only is it a large market, it's an oligopoly. A lot of the biggest players like Pizza Hut, Domino's, Pop Murphy, whatever you sort of go down the list are actually similar ish in size. They're bigger players than others, but they're similar ish in size, which means a startup can actually be able to go into this market, have multiple shots at getting into one of these big players and also play them against each other. If you were a food service or robotics company trying to go after burgers first because you looked at it and said that's the biggest market, you ignored the market structure part of it, which is you have one customer essentially that you need to sell to, and that customer basically has all the leverage in the world against you. So from when we're talking about deep tech investing and whatnot, it's like one of the big things is not just thinking about, well, what is the right technology, but what is the right market to go after for this? And if you go after the wrong market, you'll basically end up executing and then realizing that's the wrong thing, but not be able to pivot anywhere. Um, yeah, let's stay on this sort of like uh, like the technological de-risking sort of uh, like a val valley of death question. I mean, it's it's I sure. think it's 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 pretty straightforward for us to sit here and like imagine what a pizza making machine can do. Um, but getting from A to B in some of the other um, you know places you're playing in. Um, may not be quite as clear when you're when you're sort of uh, you know funding your you know recent recent PhD or associate professor or whoever you find to just to try to like realize the dream of the research that they've already been doing for the past ten years. Um, you know, what's your take on you know where the holes are? Um, you know, where if uh, you know the U.S. government spent a hundred billion dollars to sort of uh, boost uh, you know not just semiconductors but but sort of deep tech more generally, like where it would be. Um, you know, where, where, where that sort of uh, broader investment might be most, uh, most usefully spent. Yeah, I mean, basic research, typically speaking, is the place where governments and like general government spending can do the most good because the basic research and a lot of the research before the technology is actually commercializable. Uh, so R&D. So basically, we don't know what we don't know and we need to find out in terms of spending and whatever to get to a commercializable point is where government spending is really useful. The thing about trying to use government spending after that point, which is actually what a lot of countries do, if you look at uh, a lot of the Asian countries, for example, they try to pick winners in terms of spending government money to try to get something to commercialization. That tends to not work particularly well because of a dynamic that we were talking about in terms of you have to pick the right market, you have to go after the right market, you have to think about the market structure and everything. You know, when you're screening for companies and 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 markets that have good market structure to sell into or whatever, you're also screening for like technological maturity. And I'm curious, sort of like, you know, what are the when you look at something and you squint at it and you say, ah, oh, this isn't, this isn't, <laughs> you know, this needs this needs a few more minutes in the in the um uh, uh you know in the oven or whatever. What is the you know what are the you know, what are the concerns that you tend to that, that tend to lead you to say no to, you know, to, to a category, yeah. not just like a particular you know, idea? Yeah, totally. I mean, that's the distinction between engineering risk and R&D risk. The thing about being an investor trying to commercialize it is engineering risk is actually hard enough, which is in the way we define it is basically risks and problems that you can contain, constrain and basically put a bound around in terms of I need this many engineers and this much time to basically figure out this problem. Usually that's how to tweak the technology, how to get it to specifically get from this scale to a bigger scale or something like that. And that's engineering risk. And that's investable because that's basically what you're trying to bet on and trying to scale it. From a category perspective, there's a lot of categories that don't actually have those bounds or at least don't realistically have those bounds. That's basically R&D risk where you just need a breakthrough or two for the market or for the technology to actually become viable. And the problem with that is that it might happen next year, but it might happen 10 years from now, or it might happen 10 years, 10 years from now. Like AI, for example, as you know, our conversation has covered a lot, seems to be coming into its maturity now and is mostly engineering risk on a lot of applications. But say in the 80s, everyone is predicting AI is definitely going to make a huge difference and it's going to take over the world. Same thing with the 90s. Same thing as you went 10 years sort of each decade, uh, AI was supposed to have arrived. But the problem is before it actually arrives, you 
don't actually have a company or you don't actually have a technology that can be commercializable. It's been really remarkable for me. I was reading back about the sort of Japan's investment in the in the late 80s and early 90s around this idea of fifth generation computing. And basically, like if you read the documents when they sort of launched that of like their wish list of what an AI could do, it's like GPT-4. It's like, you know, we're going to have a universal translator. We're going to have something where you can ask it a question and it'll give you an answer. And like, you know, the, the tech wasn't there yet. You didn't have enough compute. You didn't have the right sort of algorithmic uh, structure and you were decades off. And like, that's, you know, it's not great if you're the Japanese government, but it's like definitely more not great if you're, uh, you know, James and have LPs breathing down your neck. So, um, you know, the sort of dynamic, uh, uh, that, that, that sort of R and D versus engineering risk dynamic is really interesting. So, you know, there's this, there's this, there's this, um, uh, you know, pipeline of sorts, right. Where you have the NSF, you have RPE, you have DARPA doing the kind of like sciencey science. Um, and then you have this kind of other interesting, like, like th these like bridge organizations activate. We had Elon Gur, the CEO of Aria in, in the UK on the podcast a few years ago. Um, you know, Stanford and Berkeley also have these sort of like, you know, uh, hold your hand out of the lab and into the commercial uh, uh, ecosystem, like little, not really accelerators of sorts, but, you know, incubators, let's call them. Um, you know, what function do they do these organizations um, pose uh, and sort of where do, you, wh where do you think you guys pick off and what's like the value that, um, you know, yourself and other investors play in taking those, um, you know, slightly more baked, uh, uh, you know, uh, professionals and ideas and, 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 and science experiments and, and bringing them ultimately to, to market. Yeah. I mean, NSFI core, um, Skydex, Stardex, these other accelerator incubators that try to take a technology and bring it to the first step actually do a great thing for the ecosystem, which is they get them to the first step. That's still super important in terms of it. It's taking a PhD or researcher who is not used to thinking about markets at all, and who's just thinking about the basic research and what hasn't been discovered and basically making them think about, okay, what can this technology be used for? Let's talk to customers. Let's try to figure out if there's any money to be made here. And taking that first step is super important. If only that were the only step to making a billion dollar plus company and then everything <laughs> taking off from there, uh, essentially where we take over and where the VC ecosystem takes over is essentially from that step, right? Now that you've started thinking about what customers and everything that you could go after, now that we might even agree this is the right market, there's a hundred, a thousand, a million, depending on what you want to say, steps from that where you essentially now need to go, okay, how do I actually get this technology into the right state to initially sell to the right customers? And what's the right pricing model? And then from there, how do I actually sequence the steps of creating this? And how do I sequence the financing for bringing in money to get me to the next steps in order to actually get from A to B to Z in terms of finally becoming a huge company? There's a huge amount of complexity. There's a huge, huge amount of difficulty there. And especially for deep tech, you don't really have much room for mistakes. So again, from a software perspective, the team can actually pivot quite a bit and do customer discovery and do market discovery. If you structure your rounds wrong, if you think about, if you execute wrong, if you go after the wrong first target market in a deep tech company, that might be the last mistake your company makes. So that's essentially where we come in and do a lot of guidance and a lot of work with the companies to try to take the right direction through. Yeah, it's it's sort of interesting, the sort of like human capital aspect of this and that, you know, a lot of your founders or the co founders you know, a lot of the founders are going to be PhDs who did not grow up, you know, running lemonade stands um, because that's not what they were into. They were into science. And then all of a sudden they have to, um, you know, navigate these very tricky issues of, of of hiring and finding customers and knowing, you know, when to bend, uh, you know, what to do with the customer wants and when to, you know, continue on with your vision and, you know, picking markets and whatever. So it it, it, it does seem to be to be, to be a really interesting dynamic of like, you know, where are they going to get that training? Is that handholding going to come from the VC? Are they going to hire like a COO who's going to be their like, quote unquote, business person? Um, you know, how has that, what are the models that seem to work and don't work? when like trying to inject business sense into these, um, uh, uh, you know, hard tech founders. 
Yeah, I think the bigger successes, definitely within our portfolio, but just generally speaking, when we've looked at it, is when the VCs are much more active. Because it isn't just giving like bite-sized fortune cookie like advice in terms of like think about markets or things like that. It's actually, okay, here's how you actually deal with a lot of these different issues, a lot of training in terms of learning how to manage companies and stuff, which again, it's, it's to be fair, it's like it also applies to software companies for those basic pieces of it. But in terms of taking a PhD who not, doesn't necessarily have the interest or the inclination towards this, it's also giving them the advice, here's how you try to transition towards that kind of CEO role or whatever, or at some point in time, it may be giving the feedback uh, you're either not good at this or you don't seem to like it. We need to bring in other people. And that's something where you actually do need investors. You do need a board of directors to actually make that, to help that in terms of directions. We've had a really popular trend of having founder led, super like, you know, founder friendly, whatever companies in terms of always defer to the founder, always give it to them. And you kind of get out of the way. And again, that kind of works for software and marketplace-based companies, especially with founders who were already super oriented and super keyed in to these yeah. marketplaces, to these customers already. That doesn't necessarily work for these deep tech companies. And I think the interesting thing is uh, talking to some of the old timers in the VC space, it used to be more popular to basically be more hands-on, take board of director seats, and in certain cases, change the management of companies. That became something that became very unpopular during the software era. But what we're finding is there's actually a real reason why VCs used to do that. And that's because for these companies within deep tech, which used to be semiconductors, it actually matters a lot it doing these different things and ensuring that the company is going in the right direction. And that, in our opinion, is actually founder more founder friendly than letting the company die because you just deferred to the founder at every single turn. Yeah. But I mean, th th there must be some sort of selection bias at the front, right? Like people who are going in to activate an I-Core, like they have some dog in them in, on some dimension for like, you know, wanting to be really rich or wanting to have their ideas spread across the world. Or I mean, like there's there's a reason they're not just like going to be professors and like living that life, right? The reality is yes and no, because in terms of the people who are actually motivated towards going for this, it's not. It, it actually, the most common reason why we see people interested in doing this is in academia, their research and their technology will never see the light of day. Mm. There's no one who's gonna actually going to take it and run with it because no one else even necessarily knows that it exists. And if they go and be a professor, what they need to do is not help this company get to the place where it exists and stuff. What they need to do is actually take this technology or take this uh, take their research and just push it forward into other tiny little pieces that haven't been covered by research yet. So it's actually a very, very different kind of skill set. And it's also a very, very different kind of motivation. Anyone who just wants to see their technology get into the world uh, is actually going to be interested in joining these programs. That doesn't necessarily translate to a market orientation of wanting to make money, which is what is required to actually sustain the company and push it forward. This was this was fantastic. Thanks so much, James. Um, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, so I am on Twitter, X, whatever it's going to be called next week, uh, at a James Wang. Uh, I write actually a Substack now on some of these AI topics and whatnot called Weighty Thoughts. So that's WeightyThoughts.com. And uh, you can also get in touch with us generally through invest at creativeventures.vc. If you're either interested in talking to us about, uh, you know, VC in general, or you have a company that you're interested in pitching us. So, yeah. Cool. Uh, James, what's a, a robotics or pizza related song to take us out with? Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, I don't know, actually. Pizza related songs. How many pizza related songs are there out there, actually? I'll find one for you. Uh, James Wayne, <laughs> okay. thank you so much for being a part of time. All right. Thanks so much, Jordan.
taco smell, that pescado smell. I got a lot of smells. I wrote a lot of L's. I got that pizza hut. Okay. I got that pizza gut. I got that pizza butt. I'm at the pizza hut. And at the taco Yeah. I'm at that pizza hut. Okay. I'm at that taco bell. That combination pizza hut and taco bell. That combination pizza hut and taco bell. Taco bell. Combination pizza hut and taco bell. Jamaica Avenue. Jamaica Avenue. Jamaica Avenue. That's where I'm at. Where you at? Jamaica. 